Hello and welcome back to Words, the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. We'll be carrying on where we left off for part two of our discussion of Odessa. In the last episode, we looked at all 17 of the tracks on the album, but today we're going to be looking at all of the additional material, and there's a lot of it. There's, yeah, there's quite, as we said at the end of the last one, there's quite a few songs that they gave away to other people. Some a lot more successful than others, in more ways than one. Mm. Um, and and was... Unfortunately for a lot of them, we don't have Gib versions no. of, the, of them singing. No. Now, we've had a look and we can't, we haven't come across anything at all, so it'd be lovely to hear them, but at least we're fortunate to hear, you know, have these that we've got. We'll kickstart things with one of the bonus tracks that was included in the 2009 reissue, and that's Nobody's Someone. I'm nobody's someone. Cause nobody loves me And each night I sleep The pain is so deep Your memory haunts me If millions of eyes Could just realize The shadow is me well, this song, Chris, it was recorded on the 3rd of October, so quite early on in, in the sessions. What it's saying, is, despite the obvious quality of Nobody's Someone, it will be initially, it was obviously not used. Attempts will be made to mix the track on three separate occasions in 1968, 1969 and 72, perhaps hinting at a potential release either to somebody else or anything. Nevertheless, the song will be recorded a second time though it is unknown if this alternate version predates or postdates today's recording, with just Barry's voice and a different orchestral score. When looking through the booklet for the 2009 reissue of Odessa, Andrew Sandoval, who does all the fantastic notes and supervision for the reissue, he's very fond of this song, much more fond than I am. He says that it's uh, one of the Bee Gees' best and describes it as a haunting song. But then I did find that Andrew himself did a recording of the song he came across the song in 1990 it was actually being considered for inclusion on tales of the brothers gib the box set oh okay because that, that's interesting because i this is one of the early early bootlegs i i got and this song was on there and it always stood out as one of the better bootlegs but it's it's really fantastic to hear the when this was obviously redone a, a beautiful crystal clear version of it Andrew said that he almost did Never Say Never Again as a cover, but he remembered Nobody Someone from 1990 and thought that it could join the long list, he could join the long list of artists who recorded exclusive material by the brothers. However, the main difference being that they didn't write the song for him and they'd never heard of him. <laughs> All right. But I, I like the song. Yes, of the two bonus sort of new songs that we have on this reissue, it's the most fitting for Odessa. We'll get on to Pity, but I think that's less fitting to this album. Yeah. I can oh, imagine this one, it, nobody, someone could be on there. Whether it could have done, but it was it was down to space. Yes. And it could have been, as, as we said before, one ballad too many for the album. The shadow is me And I see as well, it also contains a full orchestral score from another one from Bill Shepard. So 
It's a shame he probably didn't get to hear all these. Um... I feel a bit sorry for him. The amount of work and time and effort that he put into songs that laid dormant for 30, 14 years. Yeah. And many, then... many still unheard. Yeah, and then you've got all them songs that Robin did. That, you know, people obviously performed on them that, that are not here to hear the clean versions. Obviously, they're the originals, but not... Um... Couldn't hear them for 45 years. Yeah, yeah it's a shame. It's a great shame. It's also a pity. <laughs> This is just a really good outtake. Uh, such a treasure to have. I think it's brilliant. I yeah. do. I can see why it's left off Odessa. It's the most upbeat song they recorded. Too upbeat for Odessa. Yeah, definitely too upbeat. Well, it's too up- and definitely for the follow-up albums. Mm. It's, uh, I, I just think it's a cracker of a little tune. Yeah. I do. I mean, they started it, it was recorded in America, and that's where it ended in America. They didn't touch it anymore. So whether they decided they were going to go on this orchestral route and, and just put it to one side. But no, I, lo- I love this song. And I mean, I could quite happily see this on, on the, the final album. You're right, it works on there. Yeah, but they, it's that dum dum bit. It, it's, it's, it's so catchy, isn't it? it just, it's got that sort of thing, to, it's like you win again. It's, the, it's something on it that draws you, in. draws you into it, yeah. Should I swap our theme tune for the podcast from You Win Again to Pity? Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Pity, the Bee Gees podcast. Before getting the 2009 reissue, how much were you aware of this song? The only time I saw it was, I think, on Joseph Brennan's list of Bee Gees songs it was a complete shock when I saw the track listing and it was the first track I went to you know out of all the album straight to this one and I must admit it, it was played three or four times on the track because I couldn't believe how good it was and I think with you wasn't it when I told you about this album you, yeah. need, you need to listen to Pity when I first listened to Odessa I was just listening to the album and I could see that on Spotify there was 20 or so extra tracks but ignored them because at that point I was only interested in listening to the albums yeah. and going through them but on your recommendation I listened to it and fell in love with it like you did yeah it's so good isn't it yeah this leaves us with one little leftover curio from the reissue and that's it is the, a curio as well isn't it it's the Odessa promotional spot of Odessa by the Bee Gees <laughs> on, on Atco it's great fun to listen to it's so of its time with the received pronunciation. Yeah, I wonder how much you got paid for that. <laughs> You've been listening to selections from Odessa, a deluxe two-record set by the Bee Gees, on Atco Records, available in this record department. One of the most fantastic record packages ever released. It's Odessa, a deluxe two-record set by the Bee Gees. It's packaged in red velvet and filled with unbelievable performances. Every sound is unique in the Bee Gees' great new two-record set called Odessa. Now, I think, Chris, we've got a couple of songs that, same as previous podcasts, that we've got titles for, but little nothing else. Yeah. The first one I've got is Everything That Came From Mother Goose. Have you got much on that one? Yeah, I've got a quotation from Colin, and he said that 
I do try and write songs, but it's no good competing against the brothers. Morris and I try and write something, and in the meantime, Barry's written 53 songs. <laughs> so you can see what I mean. I write, but my songs are very Dylanish and country-inspired. Very odd lyrics, in fact. Some turn out to be very ambiguous. Everything that came from Mother Goose is the best we've done. So... Oh, OK, yeah, yeah. So I think this one is just written by Colin and Morris. Yes. So just the two of them. And the only other one we've got is a, a very, very short song. It's a Barry-led acoustic number, and it's announced by the engineers called Catch Me When I'm Lonely, though the tape box actually calls it Catch If I'm Lonely. Um, before take two, an engineer from the control room remarks that the piano played by Morris doesn't sound in tune with Barry's 12-string. Take three will be the final rendition, and it will receive overdubs of a second 12-string acoustic guitar. It would be nice, as ever, if one day we could have a tune, be it a demo, or some sort of version of the song to put against that title, but, you know, we can hope. Now we're going to move on to the songs that they gave away to other artists, and we're going to begin with the several tracks that they gave to a group called The Marbles. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I think we'll start with the big single of that, and that's uh, Only One Woman. Well, I really like this one, Chris. This one shot all the way up to number five in the UK and number six in Germany. And considering the Bee Gees had a number one with I've Got to Get a Message to You in August, this, this reached number five in September, within, within, literally within a month. The lead singer, Graham Bonnet, I think he went on to a group called Rainbow in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And here's a clip from 1989 of Barry discussing the Bee Gees' relationship with the Marbles. We worked with a group with a duet called Marbles mm. in 1968. We gave them a top five record in England. We recorded a top five record with them in England. Immediately after they had a top, that top five record, they did articles in the newspapers saying they didn't want to be associated with us because we were getting the credit. Mm. But they wanted to be their own... They wanted to get the credit for what they were doing and they've never had a hit since. So, um, I mean, they could have done... But the, what I'm saying is that that's what happens. Mm. You have to be very careful when you're working with a new artist to give especially them, with us <laughs> you know, to give them the confidence, to give them the credit, and make sure that they're seen in the right yeah. light. That it's not always reflected back on the producer. Yeah, that is a bit of a odd thing to do after the Bee Gees have just given them a hit for the Marbles to then turn around and publicly sort of disregard the Bee Gees. It's a strange thing to do. Well, the next single was a slight hit. Was it? You know. At number 28, I think, the following song that they did. Uh, um, but uh, they weren't, that was the biggest they were com- going to have. Only One Woman sounds to me like it's mainly Barry on writing duties. Yeah, I, oh, I think it was Barry. It's got the same soulful flavour to it as End of My Song and a few other tracks we've seen up until now. But, they, but they're, they're given the full Bee Gees backing and everything because, I mean, Bill Shepard does all the orchestration for it. It's like the Bee Gees without the Bee Gees singing it. Have you ever heard a version performed by the Bee Gees? No, but I did read that they did attempt a version in 75, pre-main course. With Arif Mardin? Yeah. Why they decided to do it, I don't... I mean, I'd love to have heard it. Yeah. It's one that they must have... 
thought they'll give it a try, but I assume it's it, going back to their old ballad style. And that's what they were trying to um, change, weren't they? We're not going to be hitting main course for quite a while yet, so in the meantime, if anyone has got that version, send it our way. Also, the B-side to this one is By the Light of the Burning Candle. As opposed to the other one, I think this is more Robin influence. I agree. And poor old Robin again put on the B side. <laughs> Even in songs that he's not singing. <laughs> this one was actually written during the idea sessions. And that was back on the 22nd of March 1968. I've never heard of the Marbles outside of doing this podcast. Could you inform us about well, that? Well, the only thing I... Because I'd never heard of them either until when I got the record. But... Um, From what I've read, Robert Stigwood signed Graham Bonnet and his cousin Trevor as a duo in in 1968. Trevor worked with the Bee Gees in Australia. And then in 1967, he joined Graham's band, the Graham Bonnet set. By the Light of the Burning Candle appears to be one of those demo recordings, somewhat redone and remixed later on. Trevor originally sang lead on it, replaced by Graham probably in July. And now, Chris, shall we do their follow-up single, which was The Wars Fell Down? And it fell into the charts, or lack of charts, six months later. This one's a very powerful ballad. Well, that's what I wrote down. It's really, really powerful, but it's not dissimilar to Only One Woman. No. This one, as I mentioned before, didn't do as well as the previous one. But yeah, it it was written by all three three of them, and it was released as a single in, in March. And so released same month as Odessa. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that the general public or the music buying public who would have been consuming these singles and listening to these songs by the marbles and by other artists that the Bee Gees gave songs to around about this time, would they have been aware that these were songs written by the Bee Gees? Probably DJ would have said in in his new single by the marbles written by the Gibb brothers. But because the Gibbs have only been going since 67, they're not like a, like now if they wrote a song, it would be, you know, this is a Barry Gibbs song, whatever. They'd only been sort of in the public eye for two years, so or less, probably less than two years. Yeah. This one is a bit samey, so I can see why this one, you know, just didn't do so well. I found a quotation from Barry from February 1969, and he said, At the moment, we're recording the Marbles' new single, The Balls Fell Down, which I wrote, so it was a Barry composition. Yeah. We've patched up our differences. Barry then goes on to say that if our association is helping the Marbles get a foothold in the business, then it's good because that's a difficult thing to do. So the the Bee Gees are there to help the Marbles. It's a strange thing for them to turn around and say that a composition that they've been given, especially written for them, isn't up to their standard. Well, I'm not seeing any Marbles podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) That leads us on to the next track, which is called... 
Love you. Love you. Well, Chris, that's another Barry, Robin and Morris composition. Though, when I listen to it, I hear Robin. I consider this to be the weakest of the compositions that they gave to the Marbles. And it's also got a different lead vocalist. You've got Trevor Gordon on vocals on Mm -hmm. this one. But again, it's got the, uh, um, the backing of Barry on guitar, Morris on bass and Colin on drums. Robin is credited as co-producer on this one as well. Going back to us believing that this is more of a Robin composition. Yeah, yeah. And for the last of the marble ones, Chris, we've got Little Boy, which was the B-side to I Can't See Nobody. This was released as a single in Europe on Polydor, but not in Britain. Little boy With your smile so pretty now What are you doing in my town? I find that this song, Little Boy, along with a lot of the other compositions that they gave away around this time, has a very saccharine, overly sweet quality to it. The singer on this one, it seems to be like sort of a monotone. It's the same all the way through, whereas Grand Bonnet at least puts a little bit of power into it, i.e. Only one woman. With this one, looking at it, I can't see where it was recorded, but it's written by Barry and Morris. So I assume it was probably written while they was recording or collecting songs for Cucumber Castle. And it's a slowish, it's the slowish of the songs they've done and the most stripped back one. And a lot of Cucumber Castle is acoustic piano stripped yeah. back ballads. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking that that is the case on this one. Yeah, it's a good theory. Are you planning on settling down? And that finishes all of the original material that was given to the marbles. We now have an instrumental called the Square Cup, which was given to the Max Greger Orchestra. This is the TV game show theme tune that never was. It reminds me a lot of the theme music for Bullseye. That's a game show in the UK. After doing three sort of serious instrumentals on Odessa and then playing this one, they're worlds apart, aren't they? Complete worlds apart. I think this is one credit to all three, three of them. Yeah, but hearing it out of context, no idea that it would be... The Bee Gees or anything oh, to do with oh, them. You wouldn't have a clue, would you? No. Mind you, I suppose if you heard one of the instrumentals on Odessa, you wouldn't, you wouldn't naturally think it was the Bee Gees, would you? So, proves how versatile they were. In order for this to have been released as a single in Germany, there must be some sort of novelty charts for instrumentals. It would really surprise me if this was ever intended to be released and then be a hit within mainstream pop charts. I don't know, it's it's a really weird one. 
Yeah, there's not a lot I can say to this one, really. But as you said, it just it puts in mind of a TV or TV theme or something. Yeah. And the next song that the Gibbs gave away is one called Maypole Muse. Can't wait for this one. And we apologise about the vocals. <laughs> David Garrick said that I used to sit with Barry Gibb in his flat in Eaton Square. One night he said, I'm going to write you a song. And he dashed off Maypole Muse in around 20 minutes. Oh, okay. I really struggle to get behind this song. I think even if it was Barry or Morris or Robin singing it, I still would struggle. It's a throwaway song. It was dashed off in 20 minutes and it sounds like it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't help that the vocalist is not particularly good. No. Very, very weak. I don't know whether he recorded it with a cold, whether he had a peg on his nose, but it sounds to me than, than a sort of a, you know, somebody that sings in a, in a club. Yes. That sort of singer. Yeah, I'm finding a lot of the songs from this era, as you said... A Holiday Club, Cabaret, we spoke about some of those Jerry and the Pacemaker songs a few episodes ago, which were the club Mm. circuits, Cabaret. Whether you change the speed, you know, the tempo of it, whether you went slower or faster, um, it might just bring a bit of life to it. But as it it stands at the moment, it's it's a couple of listens, right, what we got next. Have you ever heard a version with the Bee Gees singing? No. Funny though, I did look on the internet to see if I could see, or if there's an acetate of Barry, because sometimes on these, there are a couple, especially with Rob, on Robin, where there's acetates, and I can't find anything. It's interesting with the lyrics on this one, Chris, because it was recorded the same day as I started a joke, and this one starts with, I started a song. There's no comparing. Oh gosh, no. They're coming through thick and fast. Here's the next one called Smile For Me. This one was an outtake from Horizontal that uh, they pulled out of the bag for the Tigers. Do you know much about the Tigers? Not too much. I know that they're a Japanese band. They were in the late 1960s. What does it say in the ultimate biography? What it's saying is that uh, Polydor introduced them to Barry, who delved into his bag of unreleased material and pulled out Smile For Me. With a little bit of rewriting in which Morris participated, it was soon ready. Strangely, after going to such bother, Polydor relegated it to the B-side of a song called Rain Falls on the Lonely, which is a non-Bee Gees composition. That failed to provide any hits. In Japan, they reversed it, so Smile For Me became the A-side. And the thing is, with with Japan, I mean, I have one or two singles. They're they're really lush, really, really collectible. And I think on this one, there must have been quite a few photographs of the group. And there's also Barry appears in about three or four of them. Yeah. yeah. I think this is a slightly better quality song, though, than Maple Muse. 
Yeah, I agree. It's better than Maypole Muse, although it does still have that sickly sweet quality that we've been seeing throughout quite a lot of these tracks that they gave away. Well, after hearing the Tigers version, I've managed... Well, I've got a bootleg copy of um, Barry's singing Smile for me, but be warned, it is a very lo-fi recording. Mm. Another acetate of an acetate of an acetate. Yeah. Of a bootleg. Yeah. But you, but listening to this, you get... You, you know it's Barry straight away and, and the feel of what the song and how he, he would have done it. Yeah. spoke before of the songs being very sweet well the next two songs treacle brown and four faces west are as sweet as they get and these were given to child singer laurie barmer Some background information on the singer. Laurie Barmer was discovered by the record label RCA whilst in Sydney. And her parents, who were originally from Britain, knew the Gibb family. And that's how the connection oh, started. Okay. Yeah. And this resulted in Barry writing songs for her whilst the Gibbs were in Australia. Some of those songs we will cover when we get back to the Australian uh, material at a later point. And Laurie Barmer said that my contract came unstuck as often happens when lawyers, parents and a child are involved. But for my part, my affection and gratitude to the whole Gibb family is far-reaching and unwaning. So that's very kind of It is, isn't it? Like I Can Lift a Mountain or We Can Lift a Mountain that we spoke about in yeah. Idea, these were intended for the Pippi Longstocking project. And I assume both of these were composed by all three brothers as well. Yes, yeah, they were. All three brothers provide backing vocals, Barry is on rhythm guitar, Morris on keyboards, and we've got, again, Bill Shepard arranging. Now, it was actually Barry who produced both of the songs, but Morris and Robin are also credited as producers. What do you think of both songs? I I think, Chris, after listening to the two previous, Smile For Me and Maypole Muse, both we said Barry, didn't we? I think this one has got more of a melody belonging to Robin. In fact, both of them. That does make sense because We Can Lift a Mountain, which was also mooted for this project, that has a Robin vocal. Robin seemed to be pushing this project more than Barry, whether that's just the way I'm reading it or seeing it.
now that we've almost brought the 1960s to an end with regards to the songs that the Bee Gees gave away, we thought it would be good to ask you, the listeners, your opinions on these giveaway songs. Yes, and see if you've got a different perspective to what we're, you know, we're, we're hearing. Yeah, because I'm finding that I'm so used to the, the Bee Gees songs as they are on the album, and I like hearing these extra tracks, Pity, Nobody, Someone, I think they're great quality songs. But it's generally then the songs where they're specifically written for other artists. But that would change oh, yeah. in the 80s, wouldn't it? Come to the 1980s and there's songs like Heart Stop Beating in Time, yeah. which I think is one of the best Bee Gees yeah, songs. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it's only in this early period, obviously the Bee Gees are still developing as writers. Yeah. If you love any of these songs, if you like Maypole Muse, let us know. Yes, yeah, I'd love to uh, um, share your um, views on that one. Yeah. And going back to Odessa, we'll take a look at some reviews and critical reception. Yeah. How did Odessa fare in the charts? Looking at it, there was a dip all over. 20 in the USA, 10 in the UK, and again, a good place in Germany, number four. But sometimes, putting into perspective... It's, it's a double album. So, you, you know, it, it's not quite double the price, but you're expecting people to pay more money. There's a few other reasons I can think. Firstly, they didn't tour the album. And secondly, there was no big follow-up single after 1st of May and Lamplight. 1st of May having reached number 37 in the USA, there was no successor. No. What else was Odessa competing against when it was released? Well, it's quite a strange chart, this one, because around this time, there's a lot of soundtracks, and I would sort of say middle of the road. You've got Sound of Music in the charts. That, that was number two. Then you've got Mary Hopkin with Postcard. And just below her, at number four, you've got Engelbert Humperdinck. And then you've got The Best of the Seekers. Oh, and number one was Diana Ross and the Supremes. And they were joined by The Temptations on that one. And and then number seven, a little bit further down, you've got the soundtrack to Oliver. And The Beatles sneaking at number eight with Yellow Submarine. Another soundtrack. Another soundtrack. And then number nine, you've got The Beatles again with The White Album. So, it's you know, it's not not a particularly heavy... But 1969, this is the year that concept albums start to become a thing. You've got The Who's Tommy... Genesis, their first album from Genesis to Revelation, its origins began with a concept album. And also, whilst talking of Genesis, it's worth making the connection between them and the Bee Gees. Yeah, yeah. Because their first producer, Jonathan King... Well, he's the guy that discovered them, wasn't he, in uh, Charterhouse? Yeah, and he was a massive fan of the Bee Gees and wanted Genesis to follow the Bee Gees' route. Because their first single, Silent Sun, does... If you listen to it, reminisce Bee Gees first and horizontal. This is the beginning of the year as well for album groups, i.e. Led Zeppelin, who never re- released a UK single. Jethro Tull, there's quite a lot of them. That The music came more, probably you say since Tommy, became sort of more progressive. Yes. It was it King Crimson? and That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
The Ultimate Biography says that the style of Odessa was a definitive shift from the pop of idea. I completely agree with that. Robin said that no way can Odessa be said to be commercial, but it wasn't done as a commercial thing, so it was risky. Odessa, the actual song, is still one of my favourites. Morris said, I don't think it was the best album we made, but the main title, Odessa, I loved. I thought that was beautifully played by Paul Buckmaster. Barry then goes on to say, Stigwood wanted a double album, and we didn't know why. I think it was basically a financial deal. If we do a double album, everybody makes more money except the group. So the Odessa album, to me, was not a good experience. A single album would have been perfect. Now, I'm not sure when Barry said that, because the version of the Ultimate Biography that we're referring to is the one that was published in 2000. But that quotation isn't dated within the book, so I don't know whether it was taken from an interview with Barry shortly after the release of Odessa, or maybe in the early 70s, or whether it was from before the book was published in the late 90s, early 2000s. But since then, since Barry said that, he has had a change of opinion on Odessa. Yeah, yeah, I see that as well. I think what's happened with Barry is that he's distanced himself from the Bee Gees music for quite some time. Even with the 2009 reissue, for some reason, Barry and Robin weren't involved with the liner notes. No, there was nothing, was it? They were in the previous one, Yeah, six. So they might not have even heard it. And the interview with Barry that we played at the beginning of this section was from 2021 in promotion for Greenfields. Now, Greenfields is an album that's the Bee Gees songs, but through a country lens. Yeah. And Barry picks up on the amount of country influences that are starting to seep through into Odessa. Marley Putt Drive, Give Your Best. Yeah. And I think that's really made him appreciate the album a lot more. I totally agree, Chris. I mean, you've got American theme there. Then then we follow up with the next album, which is countryish as well, isn't it? Yeah, Where Barry goes into it. He's obviously promoting this album, and from what he's saying, or from interviews I've heard, there looks like there's going to be a follow-up as well. Yeah, and for volumes two and three of Greenfields, he seems to want to bring back lesser-known songs from the Bee Gees discography, and explore and revisit the country songs that have always been there in the Bee Gees canon, but have often been overlooked and forgotten about. So things like Sweetheart and The Lord. Or at least that's what we gathered from what Barry was saying in his interview with Tim Roxborough, which is a fantastic interview, highly recommended. Barry's in very good spirits and he seems very excited about projects to come, Greenfields 2 and 3. Yeah, he seems he seems keen to... And he seems clued up, doesn't he, on, on, on all these songs? Because sometimes you hear these... Singers and they and they don't they seem very flippant of their past, but he he seemed quite clued up in the interview when he asks him about different songs. He even sings a little bit of some obscure songs. So yeah. I can't remember Chris. Did he he sang a clip from an unreleased song, didn't he? The victim. Oh, the victim. That's it. So that bodes well, doesn't it? For yes, volume two or three. Fortunately, there have been a lot of reappraised reviews for Odessa partially thanks to the 2009 reissue. It brings it up to the forefront, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas people might have dismissed it at the time, they thought it was too pretentious, or just dismissed it because there was no big hits, Yeah. depending on how you see whatever you classify a hit to be. People might have disregarded it, but since the reissue, 
And since Barry's become more welcoming of the album, I think that people's opinions have started to change and they're now understanding and appreciating the album for what it is. I think it was really since the mid-90s when you had Take That did How Deep Is Your Love, you had Boys Own Do Words and I think Steps did Tragedy, that all of a sudden the Bee Gees became cool again. Yeah. And hence why we'll see later on where later albums did really well. Now Barry realises that they weren't this band to be, you know, to take more seriously. Yeah, they absolutely were the masters of pop writing and it's music that stands up today and it's music that will still be played in a thousand years. And that's why we're doing this podcast, to share our love for the Bee Gees' incredible work. We found two reviews that came out shortly after Odessa's reissue in 2009. The first is from The Record Collector. We've mentioned this magazine series before. Dad's got a library's worth in the garage. I think I've, I think I started collecting it in... Um, the first one I bought was, was when John Lennon, about November 1980. And it, it, they're still being collected every month, or 13 issues a year, should I say, so... <laughs> Record Collector says the orchestral flourishes are not dissimilar to the Moody Blues, which I which actually I agree with, of that sort of same era. But it's the unmistakable blend of the Gibbs voices and the group's unearing sense of melody that gives the work its signature. Yeah. Which is good, isn't it? Yes. Pitchfork were a bit more critical, but still seem to have a sense of reappraisal. They said, it seems cheap to claim a single album would have doubled Odessa's strength. But nevertheless, there are a clutch of weaker tracks. As it is, Odessa is a feast that's hard to fault for ambition, but too rich and occasionally too stodgy to take him on sitting. Mm. <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting the review. Yeah. I can understand what they mean, but I can't accept Odessa as anything less than a double album. No. I mean, every group, as we said before, every group likes to bring a double album out and... And if we look ahead a year to 1970, they could have released a double album every month and still not have been short for material. Oh, yeah, easy. And still give stuff away. Yeah. And still have stuff unreleased. Yeah. Now, in the early 70s, I think 1970, 1971, there are a few budget releases of Odessa which see it reduced down to a single LP. I found a Polydor release in Germany in 1970 and the same in the Netherlands in 1971. Oh, okay. And side one of the album, Odessa, Marley Pert Drive, Suddenly, Give Your Best, and then on to side two, Lamplight, Sound of Love, I Laugh in Your Face, First of May, With All Nations. Oh, so they just keep one of the uh, um, instrumentals on that. And then cherry pick the rest. Do you agree with that condensed version? Probably swap Give Your Best. And a quick glance, I'd swap Give Your Best. Um... It seems a bit Barry top heavy. Yes. On that one. So I probably would have gone with Black Diamond. To give a bit more Robin. Yeah, to replace Give Your Best. Mm-hmm. And you, would you have done? Yeah, I might lose I Laugh in Your Face. Put on another of the instruments. And there's, and there's no Melody Fair there either, is there? No, that's surprising. Whether it's because Melody Fair was on the recent soundtrack to the film. Mm. On Ultimate Classic Rock, Dave Swanson's review described Odessa as 
Despite any concrete concept, it does play out like a unified work, and one that is stocked full of beautiful songs with incredible production. The album covers a lot of ground in its 17 tracks, and except for a couple of missteps, has actually aged very well. On Amazon, from 53 ratings, I saw that it averaged 4.3 stars out of 5. That's very good, isn't it? Yes, it is. But that goes back to what I said earlier about um, it growing in stature, this album. Mm. Just looking, Chris, in, in Record Collector, they've, they've said roughly what we've said. It said that um, though this was the band's fourth album in two years, there were no real signs of the Gibb Brothers' songwriting powers waning. Although, like most double albums, Odessa would have made a better single LP. It did seem to be padded out slightly with the three instrumentals, of which what you mentioned, uh, one was played by Morris Gibb on Lulu's TV show. But there was also New Directions with a strong country feel apparently influenced by the band. Marley Put Drive was the first cut to show this influence and it is a great country blues. Another highlight was Give Your Best, which drummer Colin Peterson commented was made as the best recording session he'd ever been to. Yeah. I think which you pointed out, didn't you? Yeah. Also worthy of a mention are the powerful guitars on Lamplight. The beautiful tune of the aptly titled Melody Fair would have surely been a hit single and Sound of Love, which became a top 10 hit for the five Americans. And as I said, Odessa hit number 10 in the UK and number 20 in the States. Yeah, and then again it mentions that uh, the CD coming out in the 80s in which the track With All Nations was omitted. While we're talking reviews, Chris, I found an article... um, in which Colin's been interviewed regarding the album, and he says that there's only one track that really disappoints me, and that's Edison. It's too much like the sound of the old Aussie Bee Gees. Originally, we were going to do a whole album in the States, and the theme would have been America and the American way of life. Oh, I thought so. Yeah. I thought yeah. I had that feel to it. He said, didn't you? He said, I'd still like to do an album in America, as we planned on that theme. I think it would have been nice, especially for an English group to do that, which is... At the time, you had, like, the Kinks. Um, they were very popular, weren't they? Then they, they did Village Green, which was very English, talking about different characters within a village. Anyway, he says, Of the tracks we did in England, I think I, I like Melody Fair best. I would have liked it as a single, but then I'm never right about singles. He's, he goes on to say, I didn't think I Started a Joke would be a hit. Well, it wasn't in the UK, was it? wasn't released <laughs> um, though I thought Jumbo would have been massive a massive flop <laughs> yeah there's also a review from Melody Maker which came out at the time of the release of the album it said Odessa it's going to be a sad album but listen to the words Barry warned us recently indeed the mood of their momental work it's a double album it's basically one of despair and desolation the strings surge over the Gibb Brothers' melodies, which are often very good indeed. Arranger Bill Shepard must be congratulated on his widescreen-type scores, which cope with all of the Bee Gees' moods. The cover matches the general air of lush extravagance. It is probably the most tasteful and striking produced in the Red Velvet. The Bee Gees can be proud of their achievement. It moves pop forward along a totally different track with basic underground experiments in equal is equally worthwhile so very impressive with them wouldn't they yeah and definitely agree the bg should be congratulated it's a wonderful album
In another review on The Guardian by Alexis Petridis, he said, No record encapsulated the Gibb brothers' majestically skewed pop vision like Odessa, which, amid the usual gorgeously orchestrated heartbreak, featured mock national anthems, country and western, and a title track that set a new benchmark for their magnificent oddness. Harps, flamenco guitars, mock Gregorian chanting, a burst of barbar black sheep, <laughs> lyrics about icebergs and vicars, and emigrating to Finland. Well, he's definitely not wrong there, is he? <laughs> Quite what Odessa's concept was supposed to be remains a mystery, but it's the kind of album you listen to wrapped, baffled as to what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah. And for this album, we asked you, the listeners, on social media, what you thought about Odessa. And we're very pleased with the amount of response that we had. Yeah, very good, wasn't it? On Twitter, Charlene says that it's a bit strange in places. However, it's very well crafted. And her favourites include Odessa, 1st of May, Give Your Best, particularly The Country Feel, Lamplight, Melody Fair and Never Say Never Again. And then Linda likes Odessa very much, especially Whisper Whisper. On Instagram, TC Gibbs said, Beautiful work by the Bee Gees, a rare gem. Silver's Wavy said, I streamed Odessa after reading that it's included in the list of a thousand albums you must hear before you die. What I find most impressive is that they were so young when they recorded this very ambitious and eclectic work. That's very true. Yeah. We then had a magnificent essay from Frode777, so thank you very much saying, I love Odessa, and it is the most unique album the Bee Gees ever made. The original felt cover and the fact that it is a double album with so many great songs are arguments for being the Bee Gees' masterpiece. In my opinion, Odessa is the best opening track made by the Bee Gees, and any other band for that matter. I would agree with him on that. Yep. Yeah, I do. The song sets the tone for the whole album and sounds outstanding on my turntable. Marley Put Drive, Melody Fair, Lamplight and First of May are wonderful tracks from this album. There are also a few arguments against Odessa as the Bee Gees' masterpiece. It can be argued that the Bee Gees included too many tracks on this album, and therefore it is a bit uneven in quality. Another argument is that the Bee Gees released so many other wonderful albums which sold well or held high quality. He then goes on to reference albums such as Main Course, Saturday Night Fever and Spirits Having Flown as examples. Frode then goes on to say, I must also mention albums like Mr. Natural, Living Eyes and One as among my favourites. Hear, hear. <laughs> yeah, hear, hear. But these albums sold nothing like the previously mentioned albums such as Main Course. However, if people rate Odessa as the Bee Gees masterpiece, I definitely do not have problems with that. I could have written that myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a very, very nice response to have. Yeah, excellent. We then had a response from Walking On Air with Morris. It's a brilliant album with a range of emotions. It is one of my favourites just because it is so varied. It highlights the broad spectrum of talent that is the Brothers Gibb. Completely true. And then Jane McFarland 9 says, It is wonderful and means so much to myself and I'm sure to a lot of friends and fans. I then put out a poll on Twitter asking from Bee Gees First, Horizontal, Idea and Odessa what their favourite albums were. And the votes came in over the course of a week 
and the results weren't what I expected. You've not seen the results yet. No, 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 no. So can you guess which was the most popular to the least popular? Well, album-wise. Out of the four. Out of the four. Well, I would initially have said the first because of the singles. Mm-hmm. But having you say that, I'm, I'm probably going with Odessa. Correct. Out of 35 votes, Odessa came first with 40%. Yeah. Then in second place was Bee Gees first with 37%. Yeah, and least I would say was probably Idea, was it? Nope. Third place was Idea with 23%. And then Horizontal, last of all, zero votes. Okay. Zero votes for Horizontal. When we was talking about doing this podcast, I'm almost sure you had that as your favourite. I did, because Horizontal was the first ever Bee Gees album that I'd heard, so I have a lot of sentimentality yeah. for it. But actually thinking about all four of the albums, I don't know whether I'd still say it's my favourite objectively. Idea was my least favourite before we were doing this podcast. I would have said the idea out of these four yeah. was the weakest. But actually that one I really, when doing this yeah. podcast, that one really changed for me. It's difficult. I come across a bootleg Bee Gees album and somebody called it the first horizontal idea. <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> yeah. And what they've done, basically what they've done, they've used all the bonus tracks from the first three albums and made a compilation of one album. Yeah. So it's quite a clever idea though, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the Bee Gees never did a promotional tour following on from the release of Odessa. There was talk that they were going to do a tour. Yes. Situation as it was, that never happened. So what we've done as a bit of fantasy baseball is we've looked at the tour set list from 1968 when they were going with Idea and Horizontal and we thought which songs from Odessa could they do live in this sort of 15 song 40 minute set list and which songs would we take out of the previous set list and swap with songs from Odessa. So looking at the set list from 68 we're opening with New York Mining Disaster, we're closing with words and we've also got songs like Morning of My Life, I Can't See Nobody, Jumbo, The Singer Sang His Song, Let There Be Love. Dad, where do you begin? What would you move out? What songs from Odessa? Well, you'd take out things like Jumbo, because obviously that tour was promoting that song. I see they sang really sincerely. I'd pull that one out. That's a bit downer for a concert, personally. If I was going to put songs from Odessa, I would put in Melody Fair. Yep. I really like that one. And then... Going to a concert, you don't want all ballads, so you want something that's a little bit up. So something like probably like Marley Put Drive, and then would you go with a recent single, First of Man Lamplight? Yes, and I could see if they're going to do an encore, if you wanted them, I can imagine them coming back with something like Give Your Best. Yeah, I mean they could start the concert off with the orchestra if they before they came on. You could have an over, is it an overture or yep. with the theme. With all nations and stuff. Yes, yeah. And then that as that slows down, they could go straight into, I don't know, either a song for that or New York Mind Disaster. Yeah, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? I'd like to see them do Suddenly, just to get Morris on the microphone. Yeah, 
Oh, that'd be good. But do you think that Odessa is a good album to tour with? Or can you understand their reasoning? Besides Robin leaving, can you understand why they might not want to tour it? Is it too much of an album? With groups like The Who, who were touring with Tommy, I think they performed the whole album. I know Genesis did um, Lambsdide, Den and Broadway, did the whole double album before it was even released. Yeah. Elton John performed Captain Fantastic in 75, and that, again, was before it was released, and that was performed at Wembley. So I think he was playing to a full house of confused and bewildered people, (laughs) wondering what he was singing about. So I think, in retrospect, they wouldn't have toured with it, but you just don't know, do you? Mm. And I asked you, when we were discussing Bee Gees first, are they a singles or albums band? And you said singles. Two years down the line... With Odessa, do you hold the same opinion? That's a good question, Chris, because the truth is I can't get it in my head that they are a singles band because they're so good at it. Yeah. Some of their albums, I would say, are a collection of different songs. Because the trouble is you're coming from three different songwriters. Okay, they're brothers and they, they sing, they write together, they also write separately. So now I'll class Odessa as a one piece but whether you classify One Piece as one as an album band, I'm not so sure. What do you think? When they began in 67, well, began commercially worldwide in 67, yes, like you, I would say they were a singles band. Then they sort of, in the late 60s, early 70s, dip into the albums. But I think that was more because of the response they were getting from the public, the British public. I think they always wanted to be a singles band and they always have been a singles band. It wasn't until main course that the singles started coming back up again and they could become a singles band. Yeah, I think had they wanted to become an album band, they would have paid more attention to the packaging and the whole thing of it. Yeah. Because we've we've heard interviews with Barry where he sort of says, well, we had nothing to do with, with the album cover. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. Well, if you want to be an album band, you're going to want to see the whole thing, the in the sleeve and well I, I think so and you get these progressive groups uh, you get like Yes and so much time must be spent on the on the actual album covers all of Peter Gabriel's liner notes on the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway yeah yeah they kind of do it with To Whom It May Concern with the pop-up figures yeah and and we was, saw something recently with Peter Gabriel when he's discussing his albums because the first four are just called Peter Gabriel but then for the next album, he, whether he was told to or not to, they decided to put a title on it. He then goes with, with the title with the shortest... So it, it was either going to be Peter Gabriel, on, off, Us, in, up. is, up, but he went with so. I think the reason he said that was because he liked the shape of the letter S and O. And it was also a clever technique to market the album and promote it, because if there's a long name like Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band then the title and the typography is going to be small in order to fit in all of the words. Whereas with So, S and O, you can have that really big on the album cover or really big on a poster. And so people are going to see it, it immediately stands out, they remember it. And it's the similar thing with Odessa, with just the red velvet and the gold lettering. And no Bee Gees on the front, is there? No, it's just the, the name Bee Gees, the name Odessa, it stands out, it's a deluxe packaging as the promotional spot yeah. says it's a luscious product and i think the content inside matches that yeah from the opening strings of odessa and the cello 
to the closing instrumentation of the British Opera. Yeah, definitely. It's Odessa, a deluxe two-record set by the Bee Gees. I'm looking here at the 2009 reissue, and it's absolutely beautiful, this clamshell CD box set with the replica velvet covering. It's really a, a gorgeous item. Because the when they reissued the CD back in the 80s, they I think they admitted a couple of songs, because obviously they said they couldn't fit it all onto one CD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is just a boring. It, it, it just doesn't even open up. No, yeah, it just, it just opens up um, with a bit of paper slotted in. Uh, it's not at all like the box that you're holding. Yeah, and with that golden lettering, BG's Odessa. Mm. It's a fantastic job on the reissue. It is very sad that this is the at the moment. This is the last album we'll be discussing that has one of these accompanying box sets. Yeah. Yeah, and the last one we'll see as Bee Gees as a uh, um, band as such, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. going into Cucumber Castle, well that's just two people. Yeah, and so we, we've on. gone five, four, three, and then as we will see it'll be one and then two. Yes. Should we look at our comparisons of scores out of ten from before and after? Yeah. Yours went down somewhat from a 7.6 to a 7.4. Oh, okay. Whereas I went up from a 6.7 to a 7.1. Oh. And I can see for you that certain songs stayed the same, First of May and the British Opera, whereas Never Say Never Again, I Laugh In Your Face, With All Nations, Seven Seas Symphony and Marley Put Drive all dropped down by one. Oh, okay. But Odessa went up for you from a 9 to a 10, whereas for me there were some drop downs such as um, Black Diamond went from an 8 to a 7, but I laugh in your face, never say never again, uh, and the instrumentals all went up by one. Oh, that's interesting. I think probably when you asked me for my scores, I, I probably went more on memory. I suppose in hindsight, I should have given it one listen and then scored it. But but no, no, that that's about fine. Every one of them, I think, is it the last albums have all been in the seven something or other? Yeah, averaging around there. Yeah. So they're all pretty consistent, aren't they? It'd be yes. interesting to see what these come out when we, as we progress. Yeah, throughout later yeah. episodes. But I've enjoyed rediscovering this album. Yeah, I have. I've really enjoyed doing it. And for the next episode, we're going to be taking a gap from looking at Bee Gees, air quotation Bee Gees albums, as we'll be looking at the first officially released solo Gibb effort, because it's around the release of Odessa that we lose Robin Gibb temporarily from the band. Yeah. And he then goes on to release his first solo album, Robin's Reign. But what we've decided to do is, because there was so much material recorded by Robin and a lot of stuff scattered all over the place, we've decided to take the year of, just all of 69, which obviously is most of his stuff for that, for that album, and then another episode for, for 1970. Yes. Right, well, we'll leave you, as always, with a deep cut, this time from those Robin sessions from 1969. Because I am... Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast. 
presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. Of all the moments in our time, there's none like this. And every day when our lips met, there's none so bliss. For when I say, sweet sailor, I laugh and leave with tears on me. You better give me a smile as I leave you, Heather. Treasure yourself and find time for no else for. While I'm away, I will stay firm beside you.